0: So I hate to start on a sour note, but I have to ask you, for all of the kids wanting to shovel your sidewalk, folks lost, maybe they're looking for directions, whatever, how many times have you felt compelled to grab your gun to go open the door? I haven't yet. Okay, great. That's all I wanted to know. There are... Is some stuff that we're going to talk about in the final movement. We're offering all of our prayers to uh, Ralph Jarl as this is being recorded. I don't know uh, how he's doing in the hospital. He's at home. He's all the way at home now. The guy got shot in the arm and in the head, and he's already at home. He's recovering at home. Wow, that is beautiful because there was definitely communities surrounding him and and.
1: Whew, I was coming at I'm glad the, to hear that. I was coming at it from the direction of wait a minute, he got shot in the head and you're letting him go home after what, a day and a half?
0: Well, I guess we're we're doing something right Whew. around here. Um we'll we'll jump more into that in the final movement, but uh to get us started here as usual, shout out to our supporters over on the West Coast, Salestina is classical music's wingman. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played on your favorite films by night. They're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. I'll speak a little bit more to some of their upcoming programming here in a bit. Uh, But Scott, for right now, you know, I'm thinking about the levels of racism that are still existing and still impacting folks in our communities, including those of us who are musicians, as Ralph is, and I just can't help but to think about one of the biggest manifestations of that on the artistic side is this fear of engaging hip hop in its authentic form. I love the uh, arrangements that happen. Mm-hmm. We can all snicker at uh, PDQ Bach, you know, making a joke and rapping something. But I think it's that authentic, real engagement of hip hop in classical spaces that feels like one of those big, Big mountains big to climb when, when we talk about decolonizing mm. things. Uh the algorithms, you know, know what I like to listen to when it mm-hmm. comes to uh hip hop. So I'm constantly, you know, getting uh hit by the City Girls and of course Megan the Stallion. Uh Saucy Santana is not a woman, but very much on the femme side of of rap. And over the weekend, you know, I was just letting the playlists go and a Nicki Minaj track came up that I think at this point really is a classic uh certainly in her catalog but uh definitely i think a contemporary classic across hip-hop and uh i want to share a little bit of it here it's called itty bitty piggy Here's, here's here's how this opening goes
2: I was on the plane with the wine. You could call me Whitley. I go to Hell Main. Listen to the baddest in the school, the baddest in the game. Excuse me, honey, but nobody's in my lane. When you was in New York, you was fucking the Yankee. I was fucking with bass. I was pitching the Frankie. These bitches so cranky. Give them a hanky. My mommy, I'm cold. Give me my bled- And yeah, at, okay.
0: at that point of the tune, she has to rewind it because she put so much in those opening bars. She felt like we didn't hear her. So mm. she goes back. Nice. <laughs> (laughs) and and does it again you know one of the reasons this is a standout hip hop track to me and something that I feel like should be incorporated in classical spaces to some degree, because there's so much classic and classical culture there. When she says, um, I was on the plane with Dwayne, you can call me Whitley, I go to Hill, Maine. Do you know- <laughs> I don't know the second half. Uh, but they're, they're talking about, um, what's the show called? A Different World. Okay. You know, it's, it's just very integral to, to who we are. When she, uh, the the quote that I put on my social media from that opening that I really loved is, excuse me, honey, but nobody's in my lane. When we think about, when I think about Nicki Minaj and what she brought to hip hop in the uh, early 2000s in the oddies, I'm thinking about someone who was completely different, at least at the time. And that being that something that propelled her to the top, being unique in music, You know, even outside of hip hop, I feel like is that thing i mean would you affirm that being completely left field in a, a specific genre or a specific tradition how that can be viewed as marginalizing but could be that thing that actually gets people paying attention to you what mean you're like
1: doing weirdo yankovic or something sure like maybe that?
0: maybe or the, you know the rock star that's doing something weird or the country artist that's got a stick or you know that that sort of thing
1: sure um you got you you you've got to be good at it coming out the gate. <laughs> yeah, that different thing that
0: you're doing, you got to be
1: able to you, do. You got to own it because who else does what Weird Al does, right? Or at least to his degree, right? Right. But who can you think of anybody else that I don't know Steve Vai, the guitarist,
0: maybe. Sure. I mean, I'm thinking about the way, uh, you know, back to hip hop. uh, I don't know if you would know who he is. There's a rapper called Lil Yachty who is really going far beyond where hip hop has typically existed. Mm. And while an outlier, that's that thing that really gets people listening to you and and paying attention. I think about that point really specifically because I feel like in so-called classical music, in the so-called tradition, being as learned and being as taught and and being as, as trained as possible and being ununique is the thing that is supposed to pave the way for success. Playing this thing exactly the way everyone plays it oh, or I making this saying. sound exactly the same is what we're taught. And when I think about those two things side by side, it just creates something really interesting in my mind to consider the idea that in classical music, so called classical music, being ununique is what you need, while in every other part of the art world, even beyond music, being unique is actually the thing that you aspire for. Right.
1: We've talked about that too, about how uh, every year we get two or three new recordings of the four seasons. Mm-hmm. You know, because somebody else is going to have an approach that's different enough that the recording is going to break ground. I don't know. Yeah. We have every year, we have new recordings of stuff that we have dozens of them already. Yep.
0: Yep. And I know that, you know, there are folks listening who, you know, look, I'm, I'm a lifelong Barb. I'm a lifelong Nicki Minaj fan. Mm -hmm. I know there are folks who would, you know, call me out because of who Nicki Minaj is married to. And my response to that is hold men accountable. Do not hold Nicki Minaj accountable for a man hold the man accountable i'm gonna say that and i'm and i'm done with this The other reason why I've always been a huge fan of women in hip hop, women in rap, you know, as I've talked about on Triloquy before, I consider Queen Latifah my sort of entry into the genre. She's one of the first rappers I can remember hearing from. And I think the way that they tell their so called unpopular opinion (laughs) is very attractive to me. We hear men in rap talking about women in various types of ways. And then we finally get women talking about, you know, ninjas ain't shit. And actually it's da 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 and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. While all of that is something that's attractive to me, (laughs) I think it's also really attractive to hear a similar, maybe converse sort of so-called unpopular truth coming from some of the men. And Kendrick Lamar does that in a really really brilliant way last week we were talking about a track of his is actually an interlude on one of his albums called for free right uh, I want to sample it, and then we're gonna talk a little bit
2: genital's best friend this dick ain't free pity the fool that made the pretty and you prosper teddy juice and pussy lips kept me up notches kept me up watching por nose and poverty apology no. you know what you gotta to do with people that's fortunate like myself every dog has his day now doggy style shall help this dick ain't free. Matter of fact, you need interest. Matter of fact, it's nine inches. Matter of fact, see our friendship based on business. Pinchin' more pinchin' your bitchin'. Mark a sense. It's been relentless. Fuck forgiveness. Fuck your feelings. Fuck your sources. All distortion. If we fuck, there's more abortion. More divorce. Course in portion. My check with less endorsement. Left me dormant. Dusted. Dude, disgusted. Force with Fuck you fingers and more shit. Poison, price Pressure. Bustin' twice. Choice is devastated. Decapitated. The horseman. Oh, America, you bad bitch. I picked cotton that made you rich. Now my dick ain't free. I'ma get my Uncle Sam to fuck you up. You ain't
0: you think we can't name a baby Mercedes without a Mercedes Benz. I mean, Ken- Kendrick is going. He he is a, a, not an Academy Award, but a Pulitzer Prize winning rapper, artist, composer for a reason. Before we get into the subject matter of mm-hmm. the spoken word, I wonder how significant it is uh, for you to think about that backing track, that that jazz that's going on as originally composed i assumed and and maybe this is where you know uh my white supremacy is is uh creeping in or you know my conditioning just really shows its head i assumed that they must have been sampling something that previously existed but i did Mm. lots of research i went to many corners of hip-hop on the internet And it's very consistent that that's music by Terrace Martin, Kamasi Washington, and Robert Glasper. Of course, Robert Glasper, you know, has has been uh, a little bit of everywhere. But is it significant when we're talking about infusing true hip hop into the conversation of classical music? Does it matter to acknowledge the original composition aspects of, of tracks? Like those, as opposed d- to being samples, I
1: do. I do believe it's really important, especially when you have so many people out there who want to trash or disregard anything that's made in the box mm-hmm. in the in, in the computer, like all digital. Right. There's people that look down their nose at that. So I think that there's a certain amount of street cred that comes along with uh, your band being able to actually play their instruments to that degree. Yeah. And I also think that that sound fits with the dialogue. Um, you're talking about uh, a jazz improvisation, whereas it also seems like both of those characters in that dynamic are improvising at the time. Oh, you spit. Go ahead. So that's, all I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So uh, that's the music ma- matching the message.
0: In highlighting the genius of that jazz Inspired uh, track. I thought about sharing just the instrumental that does exist out out there in mm-hmm. the in the recordings, but I decided that. It might be whitewashing for me to just take away that actual dialogue. And I can, you know, I, I hear people when we talk about what can and can't go on radio, for example. Mm-hmm. I get that there are rules and and all of that sort of stuff, but I think it just boils down to more of a cultural discomfort with certain types of dialogue as opposed to just following rules. It makes me think about why we don't question where our senses of inappropriate come from. Mm-hmm. You know, I've said damn on the radio, you know. <laughs> Maybe I was mad or saying Mississippi goddamn or something, mm-hmm. but of course I would have never dropped uh an f bomb of of any type on on the radio. Is it something worth exploring or thinking about what's appropriate or what's inappropriate being in itself a construct built from white supremacy culture.
1: Mm. All I can say is that people talk this way, Mm -hmm. and just because it's um, just because the the vulgarity will will scare some people off. Mm -hmm. But um, I know white people who swear.
0: Yeah, I mean they they (laughs) they they cuss better than everybody. So (laughs)
1: um, you know my my brother Alan's a sailor.
0: He can he can string together (laughs) uh, some obscenities that would make you blush. You'd think he's French, right? (laughs) Um, so I, I went but and I'll oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead.
1: no, I was just I was just going to say that uh, you're you're seeing a, a bookmark in time.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: exactly. This is, this is people talk this way. Men and women relate to one another this way. If you were to take the vernacular, you know, the lexicon that he's using, away and put a sort of a trailer parky Southern draw on it, sure. Then you got a country tune
2: <laughs>
0: and a true story to match. <laughs> See, uh, I, I went and looked at uh, the Wikipedia for this uh, interlude, and it says uh, basically that that Kendrick is asserting his own self worth to a woman and to the marginalizing temptations of so called success mm-hmm. in America. So we have the femme rap that's you know really pointing down at the men, and y- y'all don't have this, y'all don't have that, and then we have Kendrick who is taking that idea and even. Pushing back on it, mm-hmm. I'm sure you can speak to you know on the su- on the surface what Kendrick is <laughs> getting to. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you you have wanted to rap this to <laughs> a woman or two if you have bars like him. But I wonder if you'll talk about. Sorry, I'm laughing just thinking about you doing that. But I wonder if you'll talk wait, about. Wait, 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 wait. What what what's <laughs> funny about me doing that? Well. Use Many people, at least through listening to Triloquy, see you more as the calm spirit, the demure spirit. So you're yelling at a woman and telling her that this D ain't free and all that stuff. Just I would makes never me, yell. Yeah, yeah, uh, you would never yell it. Okay. No. You, you would, you would uh, spoken word it. I would. Know, maybe get a couple of would that, would that would be slam poetry <laughs> deluxe. But I wonder if you'll talk about, uh, again, the other aspect of this track, uh, the way success can really be something to trap people or, or get us in a problematic Mindset, get us into a scarcity mindset. How has success, you know, changed over your years or your idea of what that means?
1: Well, I can, you know, I can look at the at the piece from a couple different perspectives. Some people look at it as the woman's voice is all of Kendrick's detractors Mm -hmm. or the critics or the you know the people who back in the day might not have given him a shot. Yeah. But I think that everybody out there has somebody in their life at some point in time or another that treated them that way that just took and took and took you know not took but would just take and take and take and take from something right. and act like even this isn't good enough mm-hmm. but then the expression on their face changes when that person finally finds their backbone stands up and goes Mm-mm, I'm not putting up with this anymore right and that's I think that that's the more powerful message is putting a value on yourself yeah that yeah. I if if you don't appreciate, you know, and and one person giving you a Lamborghini, you know, in another in another um, situation, it's it's just a guy uh, picking up a uh, some roses at the uh, gas station. Mm-hmm. So everybody's given or giving and taking at different levels. And you you wanted to talk about the success piece. Maybe Kendrick felt like this person was hanging on. Sure. Sure. Maybe that's the only thing that this person wanted. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I'm saying it, this person is because I know men and women both that act like
0: this. Oh, sure, sure. But I think the way that you're really backing up and uh, getting into the allegory Mm -hmm. of of this is – is really deep. I don't even know if I've thought of it, but you've, you've obviously spent some time with this track, you know, what does it mean to (laughs) tell your boss, proverbially speaking, this D ain't free, you know, or the, the family member or the neighbor that's always trying to get something. Or, you know, if you're an artist, give me the free ticket to the, to the, whatever Kendrick spitting, right. He's spitting, you know, what is all of this for, you know? So we talk about Nikki, we talking about Kendrick, Our aspiration here on this podcast is for you to consider something broader when you think about what does and does not belong in a so-called classical music space. What if I told you that the de facto definition of classical music in the United States is the result of white supremacist conditioning? Imagine a world where at some point Within a month's time, anyone and everyone can be artistically engaged by their local orchestra or arts institution. Think about what that would mean, Mm. Scott. In a month's time, there's no one who is not affirmed through, through that artistic space. Ask yourself what your arts institutions are doing to protect its future students and professionals from the crime of being Black mm. in America. You want these Black musicians, you want more diversity in your um, in your orchestras and in your schools of music. In what way are you ensuring the safety of these young Black boys and young Black girls and young Black uh, trans individuals to even make it to your program, to make it to your audition? Because mm. so many are not. And by bro- Broadening our definition and approach to classical music, I believe we will broaden the communities that we engage. We will broaden what we see as necessities. We will shift what we think of as success, and we'll have something that's even better, (laughs) much better than what we got now. Mm -hmm. Let's go ahead and jump in. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this... It's Triloquy. This D ain't free, but I guess the the podcast is to some degree. <laughs> Thanks to all of our supporters and sponsors. Thank you so much for checking this out. If this is your first time listening to the Triloquy podcast, as I mentioned before, this is a show where we are broadening the definition of classical music toward a more equitable and inclusive future, a decolonized future. For more information on Triloquy, go over to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot In addition to all of your Very, very much appreciated support. Support for Triloquy comes from Salastina presenting on April 28th and 29th. Say Salastina as they develop, envelop you in a stunning musical playlist specifically designed to bring on a healing ugly cry again we were talking about that last, <laughs> Just week, last we, week you need that sometimes yeah. you know maybe some of more of us are needing it now thinking about the the latest tragedy uh with with Ralph Yarl. Uh, but anyway uh that's going down for with Salestina on April 28th at 8 o'clock at the Eddie at the broad stage it's also happening on April 29th at 8 p.m and live streamed from Barrett Hall at the Pasadena Conservatory so get your tickets and learn more at salestina.org. we have Leslie Kwan joining me in the third movement this hey, week. Leslie. Very uh, excited to talk to y'all about her story and for her to share her story. We're having a little bit of a guitar week here on Triloquy. You yep. just, uh, uh, in the second movement, you let me know that it's uh, National Guitar Month.
1: International. International. Oh,
0: excuse me. It's worldwide. a worldwide thing. Well, uh, we both have a little bit of that. We're going to honor Ralph Jarl in the final movement and, and speak a little bit uh, to that and what our engagement of that should be as artists. But for right now, we will jump into movement one. All right. Just a very, very quick natural before we jump into our accidentals for this week. I wanted to loop back around to this story that we talked about a few times with music being played in subway stations as a means mm-hmm. to curb crime. So it's it's interesting, the curvature that we have taken with this. The first time I thought about this concept... I really thought it was about, okay, so this so-called calming classical music will keep people chill, there won't be any drama and all of that sort of thing. Well, as the stories continue to develop... We're learning that this music is actually being weaponized and right. uh, is, is very anti-people. Uh, just um, I'll have a, a, the article uh, linked in the description, but I just want to read something. Uh, the music described to uh, by one person as earplugs at a concert loud is the audio version of hostile architecture where bumpy benches and spiky surfaces are mm-hmm. employed to keep those who have nowhere else to go out of sight. So this isn't about keeping people calm and relaxed and not feeling like they want to hurt each other. It's really about pushing people out of the space, weaponizing this music.
1: Right. So the first one, if you go back and you listen to the Coin Fight opus, the the one called Coin Fight, that's about the one over in Wales Mm -hmm. where they were talking about the subduing things. It was the um, LA story about the stop in MacArthur Park That they were saying they wanted to create an environment that was good to pass through, but not to linger too long. Right. And now we hear that the volume is way up, and there was evidently a living composer that heard that his piece was being played and he had something to say? Yeah,
0: Adrian Berenger, I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. He uh, tweeted a couple weeks ago, I have not given any permission for my music to be used for these purposes. I believe that no form of art should be used to discourage or limit freedoms. So it's one thing to use so-called classical music and weaponize it in this way. But now you are weaponizing the music of someone who's living and breathing. They out here trying to get a performance with an orchestra and you're using it to police people who are houseless out of a space, Mm -hmm. the ghetto.
1: So I would like to say uh, a quick told you to all the people who wrote into me wanting to know why we brought that in two weeks in a row.
0: Oh, so now
2: you're mad. (laughs) I'm not mad. I'm just sitting here
0: overall superior. All right. Well, just just wanted to put that on uh, y'all's radars, (laughs) uh, thoughts and prayers, and let's really work on how to not use this music, even the stuff that we don't always talk about here, the Beethoven and all that stuff, to weaponize because that—that's not the point of it. I'm sure Beethoven is rolling around in a grave somewhere, thinking about you know one of his symphonies being used to police poor people. There's a a famous quote by Beethoven where he actually says the the exact opposite: how this is the music of the poor. That right, this is what's right. empowered. Anyway. It's, it's something out here, but we're going to- uh, You said it was
1: a quick natural.
0: Yeah, very quick natural, but we're going to move on to this week's uh, Accidentals. How about you get us started? What uh, accidental you got for us?
1: I'm going to give this a sharp. I'm reading the inquirer.com. That's I-N, the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, I want to give a shout out to Peter Dobrin, who wrote the article. The headline is, Once Overlooked Artists Are Strengthening the Classical Canon, Performances of Long Overworked Overlooked works by Florence Price, William Dawson, and Julia Perry, Perry give Bach, Mahler, and Schumann new context. Um, I want to go to the first thing that I noticed. The, the, um, they talk about music getting overlooked amid the furor with which classical music claims its new sense of conscious, the artistic value of the work being unearthed. This is the mm-hmm. next direction that critics are going to come at you anybody doing this work, they're going to say, okay, oh, all right, so you found some music by black and brown composers. Okay, it's just not very good. Mm,
2: mm, mm.
1: That's what they're trying to it's just, it's just not good. Your feedback before I give mine.
0: My feedback is that we have a white man who wrote three minutes and 33 seconds of nothing, and we celebrate that over brilliant black music. Get, leave, leave me alone. He got leave there me first. Me
1: <laughs> <laughs> but how how many weeks in a row have we preached that including this music does nothing but expand and exactly. improve the canon? That's what he's trying to
0: say with this. Um, and not just the canon, the arts institutions that are putting this forward. You right. are a stronger institution now because you have potentially the support of broader audiences. Right.
1: He writes, For the most part, this new inclusion has been framed as a historical corrective, the writing of a wrong. It's understandable. A reckoning was long due in classical music, which like American society generally had excluded more than half the human race from its power structures. Mm, mm. So, and it was David Norville that said something uh, along that, yep. and Paul Freeman, uh, the conductor Paul Freemans um, said, uh, no, it was Dr. Martin Luther King who was talking to Paul Freeman who said that classical music was the last bastion of, of uh, white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's being addressed and people are
0: mad about it. Um, one, thing I, one thing I want to point out before we get too deep. What orchestra? What institution are we talking about?
1: Well, they're talking about the Phil It's it's the Philadelphia Inquirer. So we're
0: so talking, they're talking about, about the Philadelphia, Philadelphia orchestra. orchestra. Who's the music director over there? It's Yannick. Every time. Yannick. Every time we're talking about something <laughs> as far as diversity and programming, Yannick is there. He is in the room. And this is not me, <laughs> you know, scratching it. Yannick. If anything, I'm saying that he's out here kicking y'all ass when it comes to using privilege for good. I mean, every time right. we're talking about something, can we get him on the show? Somebody, somebody, connect us. I want, <laughs> I want
1: more people to do what Yannick is doing, so we can say some different names.
0: Is there nothing to, from your perspective to be said? Yeah that that point. And is there nothing to be said about this use of privilege? Yannick is in a position, you know, to do this sort of thing. And he's doing it. So that means everybody else must just be choosing not to do it. It's hard for me. Is it inappropriate for me to make that assumption? About the New York Philharmonic or the Los Angeles uh, uh, Philharmonic or you know Chicago Symphony, mm-hmm. you name the big box orchestra.
1: I think it's safest to say that they're doing it the most visibly mm-hmm. that yep. they're really getting behind. Yeah, not it.
0: to say that the other orchestras aren't doing nothing, but the, y- Yannick's name has just become affixed right. to this work at the, this point.
1: The Minnesota Orchestra has put on a, a piece by a, a Blackerbaum comp- composer for the at least the last season. Mm-hmm. It may be longer. Yeah, they're doing good work. Um and okay, so my, my point is this. There's if they if they say that Florence Price's music is is just not that good. When was the last time you went to a concert where every single one was a banger? Every single piece that they played was a banger that you loved.
0: Especially not the concerts y'all be putting together.
1: Every concert has a clunker. <laughs> I'm telling you. But it doesn't have to. You know, that's what I'm con- saying. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So there's there, there's music that we have now that's
0: not that good. <laughs> Come on, like I'm a I fan. Said, of, I'm a fan of Divorce Shock. Yeah. I don't like everything he wrote. Sure, sure, but and, but and like I said. He- I, I, I just re- re- refuse to acknowledge that argument because there is so much out here that, you know, and, and good and bad or whatever, that that's all subjective. But there's so much mid right. out here. Right. You know, there's so much Reggie out here. Shout out to 420. That's coming up. We call it Reginald here in this household. There's so much mid out there. How dare you speak about the uh, the Negro Folk Symphony of William Levy Dawson or anything by Florence Price or, you know, Julia Perry as something that's not so good. The argument just not does not make sense to me.
1: Right. Um, f- for a person who gets uh, excited about the waltz or the scherzo movement, uh, another person is over here getting excited about a juba dance. Mm-hmm. So it's we're talking about tastes and trying to uh, appeal to the community that you are serving. Um, I want to go all the way down to the bottom and make this, this, it's a short article, you'll get through it in a couple of minutes, but the, the last point I think is the most important because I've been saying, we have been saying and saying something similar to this last point. The repertoire is never fixed. Bach had been among the lesser performed composers at various points. The full breadth of Schubert wasn't well known until after his death. By the time we get to really know Price, Perry, and others, some works will emerge as worthy of becoming repeat visitors and others will fade. We still don't know what we don't know. And when you're talking about art, there is no more exciting place than that.
0: And not only do we have the stories of this music, you know, by by Bach, for example, coming to light well after his death, we have the story of Felix Mendelssohn being the one to bring it up. To bring it so, up, right. So, so now, you know, again, Yannick is setting himself up in the textbooks in the year 20, 20, uh, 2200 or whatever. Mm. We're They are going to be learning about Yannick Neze Seguin. Right. Right. Doing the work. <laughs> Leopold Sakovsky too. <laughs> one uh one final thing I want to touch on before we leave this, something that's touched on in the article is uh how some people see institutions that do this work, how they see them just as virtue signaling. How do you sort of, you know, separate the the curds from the way the wheat from wrote, the chaff right re- regarding doing the work or just doing the work because we're seen and we want to be seen as good is is there even a way I'm to ring, measure that yeah
1: i'm going to ring another bell that i'm always ringing where what's your track record yeah so yeah you're going to be called out for that until you start getting a season two seasons, three seasons under your belt and then you can say what's virtue signaling about this mm-hmm. my question would also be is trying to reach more listeners Virtue signaling? Mm -hmm. If you're trying to play music that would appeal to other people in the community and make them want to come to the concert or tune into the show, is that virtue signaling by trying to appeal to more? I say unto thee, verily. It is not.
0: Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. Well, we're going to transition out of this accidental. I have to go
1: dab my forehead.
0: <laughs> somebody needs to hand you. In the black church, somebody comes and hands you a little glass of orange juice something, or something. Something. You know? <laughs> got a little sippy. Uh, we're going to uh, transition out of this with a work by Mary Lou Williams, who's uh, mentioned in the article, I didn't know this composer, so there's still so much for us to learn. Indeed. You know, why would we stick with the same when there are folks, we, we will never hear it all. You know, so we need to put as much room for it as we can. Anyway, Mary Lou Williams, she has a piece of music called the Zodiac Suite. So I'm going to uh, enjoy spending some more time with this over the week. But for now, we're going to check out a little bit of the Taurus movement from the Zodiac Suite.
1: Does that sound bullish to you?
0: Well, I was going to ask you. You're you're the Taurus. Do you feel seen? <laughs> I feel heard. <laughs> That's beautiful. Shot. I forgot that 420 is coming up. By the way, we don't have anything 420 themed uh, this this week this Yet. year for it. But yeah, yeah. Don't again. Be, be, beware of the Reggie out there, of the Reginald. Anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm going to wrap us up in this first movement with an accidental. Uh, I think I'm going to have to give it a flat. I'm not giving a flat to the writing. I'm giving a flat to the uh, the issue we're dealing with. I'm reading here from insider.com. It says an AI-generated Rihanna cover of Beyonce's Cuff It is going viral, and it could open up a new legal nightmare for the music industry. I'll let y'all read that, but what I will say is I heard Rihanna singing Cuff It by Beyonce, and... I'm sorry, I kind of liked it. I mean, uh, (laughs) Mm. there are definitely dangers to this idea of AI-generated music. But before we get into that, do you think there's any positive from this bit of technology that could be identified?
1: For Just to satisfy that question of, you know, uh, what would it sound like if Tom Waits sang Frank Sinatra? Mm Mm-hmm. Right, stuff like that. Because I wanted to, you know, because you work with, you know, composers and contracts and such. What are the legal quagmires that we're stepping into with this?
0: Yeah, so I'm thinking about the rule, and I think it's 70 years after the composer's death. 90, 90 years after the composer's death. Wow. Okay. Well, so so that's when a piece of music is just free reign. I know that there are different uh, rules when it comes to covering a thing, or you can get permissions, but when we're talking about AI generated music, who do you sue? Right. <laughs> do, do, do you sue the the computer, especially if the creator doesn't, you know, uh, put put if they don't put themselves out there? It, it seems I, I guess that's what this article is getting at the quagmire of just unprecedented yeah. uh, legal whatever that we're that we're getting into here.
1: My, my question is, what does it add?
0: What does it add to music? What does it add to the feel? It adds a couple of you know laughs and snickers over social media. It adds, a, oh wow, uh, Rihanna ate you know da da da. But I don't know if it adds much value. Certainly not for the for the artist. I don't think. Mm, quick,
1: natural here. I looked it up. It is seventy years. I don't know why I thought it oh, was 70. ninety before okay. something goes into a public domain uh, situation. Okay, let me let me say this. If I if I basically we're talking about a cover, right, mm-hmm. and If somebody's going to cover a track, I want to hear it done different. I don't want to hear them doing it over the same thing. That's karaoke.
0: Sure. Sure.
1: So that's where I stand on it.
0: Now, this goes well beyond just music. I have another article here from NDTV.com. The headline is Woman Claims AI Cloned Her Daughter's Voice in $1 Million Kidnapping Scam. Mm. Uh, I learned about this on the Breakfast Club. Charlemagne the God was talking about it. Um, but honestly, I don't even have to uh, worry about any alleged claims because I know this to be true. A few years ago, I think it may have even. I'm trying to think I was definitely on the radio. I can't remember if I had moved to Minnesota yet or not, but someone created an AI generated Garrett McQueen and called my dad's parents trying to get them to um, give them money. I don't know if they claimed I was kidnapped or or anything like that. They they didn't, you know, it, it didn't sound that serious. My gra- and see and this is my grandparents reading me. They said cuz we know you don't call that often, so when we heard from you. <laughs> but um but that is something that has happened to me, so I know that that's something that is happening much more broadly, and it doesn't surprise me at all that this AI technology, this sort of vocal technology, is used in in this way. It's a mm-hmm. scary time we're living in.
1: Um, deep fakes can make people look like they're doing porn, even video. Yeah. Or yeah, um, th- this is this is we're walking down a scary path that I don't see
0: any good coming from it. How do you feel about this, as someone who makes a living with his voice? You know, Dell's voice is on the phone, maybe on a, a work Zoom call. You have given the the scammers all of the material they need. More, there. I, I saw a report that says some technologies only need three seconds of someone's voice to create an entire thing. Mm. We, you know, certainly you over the, uh, the live radio airwaves have literally said. Every word that a person would need, you know, just piece it back together. Do you think folks in your position should be especially concerned about this?
1: I do, because what if they put together something that n- puts you in a bad light? That mm-hmm. is that is the opposite of the way that you behave. What if somebody used your voice and was uh, uh, promoting Vivaldi?
0: Oh, wait a minute, because y- y'all ought to know that something is wrong, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody call Garrett real quick. Is he okay? Because we he? got him conducting,
1: we have him talking about Vivaldi's four seasons with with love and but respect. May- but
0: maybe you're hitting on to something, you know, it's the, uh, it's the responsibility of public-facing people to really stand your ground and put your values to the front so that they know something is weird. You know, if we hear about Yannick saying something racist, I'm going to question it at mm-hmm. this point, you know? So my
1: first question, well, really, my only question is, what good, because I can think of loads of the bat, mm-hmm. what good comes from a computer being able
0: to mimic your voice? I'm immediately trying to think about accessibility, maybe people who um, have uh, some sort of condition to where they can't talk for long periods of time, but do have the chops to work in radio or podcasting. You know, them, giving them the ability to type things out and it sounds in their voice. Maybe accessibility is a a, a positive slant that I could put on it. But I, but even so, I feel like that's me stretching a little bit. Are
1: we? Uh, is this the first step toward that one Black Mirror episode where you can have a clone of your deceased loved one there living with you, like they mm-hmm. never left?
0: You're right. You're right. Now, uh, wait a minute. Okay.
1: Uh, now, wait. Wow. If I could hear my mom's voice, I might be interested because there's I have some answering machine tape with her voice on it.
0: But if AI is creating something out of her voice, that's not her. You're not listening to her. You're listening to a machine pretend to be her.
1: Which goes right back to the question of what good, what good
0: comes from it. And if somebody can write in and let me know one good thing, I, I'll, I'll entertain it. Well, listen, if I was working in live radio and AI could write my breaks and nobody knew, <laughs> I'm at home chilling, you know. So we're talking about voice tracking, and I don't know. I, I definitely think that there is something positive that can be pulled out of it, but largely. In my opinion, at this point, as far as my understanding is, this is a baby. That is a baby that I would throw out with the bathwater because if folks are are getting kidnapped, if y'all calling my grandparents, you know, and and using my voice trying to try to get some money, whew, we in we in trouble. So anyway, I'll, I'll have that linked in the description. Definitely be vigilant if someone calls you sounding like somebody you know from a number that you don't know. Just understand. That this is something that's happening yeah. out there right now. Uh, one of the AI generated, not only voices but compositions that are uh, that's mentioned here is a tune called "Drowned in the Sun," written by uh, and created by an AI something you know something in the Matrix to sound like Nirvana. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this, and I'll get your opinion if this sounds much like Nirvana as far as you're concerned.
2: Got my yeah. Right.
0: what you think
1: could you be fools well if you recall i asked you if that was somebody else's song with an ai Nirvana, uh, Kurt cobain over the top and you said no that's all ai generated mm-hmm. even the
0: tune it's, itself
1: um knowing the band and their vibe that totally is their sound but there's a boxiness about it that threw me off yeah so i think if i was listening to it not Listening for the AI aspect, if I might. You, if
0: you were in a bar or something and it came on, I might
1: think it was a B side or a lost track or something. Sure,
0: Mm-mm. it's scary times out here. Who
1: gets the money from that spin?
0: <sighs> That's the thing. And <laughs> if we start start talking about, because you know we talk about electronic payment these days with the cash app and all that stuff, mm-hmm. if it's a machine out here hoarding the actual money, <laughs> 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 we really, you know, look. Now we're in the, trouble. The, the, the Matrix is is my favorite movie, but. I don't know. I don't don't want to live live it. it. Anyway, we're here at the second movement where Scott and I are going to talk about some music that we have been spending some time with. Music not created by machines, but uh, uh, music created by people. People first. Um, And I'll go first. Go ahead. So over the weekend, uh, shout out to Tish Jones and everyone over at True Art Speaks. We went to their fundraiser over uh, at Ice House. Uh, Some incredible local talent. Uh, it's a great showcased venue. uh yeah really great venue you know lots of uh money raised for uh, a good cause um and uh one of the uh performers the woman who closed things uh, closed Things out. Her name is Thomasina. Uh, she's a, a local of the Twin Cities. I saw her perform on the Christmas Pops for the Minnesota Orchestra a couple of Christmases ago, actually, and mm. uh, she was one of the performers um, on on uh, this fundraiser. Incredible improviser! Oh my goodness, just really killing it. But uh, the next to the last tune that she performed was one that I guess is becoming a bit of a contemporary classic she uh, performed sweet love by anita baker yeah. of course you know the track you know of mm. course we all know the track there was no road trip for us growing up without Anita Baker, you know, because my dad liked to drive overnight anyway, because he figured the kids, we would just go to bed and he wouldn't have to worry with us. So I guess to even help a little, and my mom included, because she can't stay awake in a car across town, (laughs) much less across the country. You know, Anita Uh Baker was just uh, on that sound. So anyway, I'm very familiar with the music and I'm bringing it up today because this is not the first time where I've been to a, a local show. And this tune in particular is covered and celebrated. I went over uh, to the Dakota, me and Dell several months back and uh, before they, uh, played their rendition of "Sweet Love" by Anita Baker. They described it as a classic. I th- even think somebody uh, made a joke about it being a piece of uh, classical music. One hundred percent. So it's it's exciting for me to to see you know that sort of thing not only normalized through dialogue but normalized through performance. So of course I went back and revisited once again the original. But in doing the internet digging that I do, I found a really incredible cover of it that I wanted to share. So this is an artist. Uh, Known as Fun Show His uh, YouTube page is Fun Show Music And he covers this really beautifully Singing and playing the guitar So we're going to uh, celebrate Fun Show this week With his rendition of Sweet Love By Anita Baker
2: With all my heart I love you baby Stay with me And you will see mine I feel no shame, my middle of it. Sweet, it'll
0: always be this way. Who said he ain't singing? Who who, who, Who say he can't sing? He is bodying that. And I think the beauty that he's putting into that composition is just really a testament of how incredible of a tune it is in the first place. And the love that we have all grown to have around it, thanks to Anita Baker. You know, she just now got... The rights, her own music—that blows me away. That—that I think that was—I'll put an article in in the description. In 2021, she got the rights to her masters. So there are levels of just nonsense out here surrounding all of this music. But those little uh, glimpses of light, you know, those warm moments, as brought forward uh, by that classic Anita Baker track, Mm. I think really paved the way. For what the future of this thing called classical music should be. If you are in a music history course, if you are taking music theory, what, if you make your way to and through a degree and don't know that track, mm-hmm. I think it's a crime. Just as much of a crime not to know a Beethoven symphony.
1: And that is not a difficult track i uh, i'm sorry that is not an easy track oh, yeah. <laughs> to cover the difficulty on that is because the range
0: of your voice that yes. you have to have and mm, and mm, mm.
1: he's putting his own emphasis in there that you can you can hear a little bit of the tribute to anita but he's also putting his own flavor in there um <clears throat> another anita track um you belong to me of course I,
0: that is just a rip your heart out cover that she does if you are listening to this and you aren't quite familiar or don't know who Anita Baker is, cut the podcast off right now. (laughs) And go listen to some Anita Baker. We will be here when you get back. Indeed. (laughs) All right, what you got for us this week?
1: So it is International Guitar Month, all month long. And uh, I I have not... Guitars get a longer month than black people. Go ahead, go ahead. (laughs) You said it, I didn't. I made that point a long time ago. So... um, yeah, I wanted to bring, and you, you, you know, I brought in uh, some music by uh, contemporary composers writing for the guitar, so that just to shine a light on the fact that there is great music for the guitar being written right now. Yeah, and uh, I am here for it, especially this uh, recent release with uh sharon Isbin, the pride of minneapolis minnesota yeah and shout out to sharon Isbin. that's where sharon was uh was born and she was one of the first guitarists that i remember playing on the air when i oh, wow. first started as a classical music host and there is uh this piece called the affinity guitar concerto by chris brubeck and before you ask yes it's that chris he's Uh, the son of one of the sons of dave brubeck the famous jazz man and in fact the affinity guitar concerto is partially a tribute to his dad but also he's speaking to uh, sharon's background a little bit as well because she wanted to be a scientist Mm, that's right i forgot about that before she uh, got into guitar and so that idea of affinity of two different things coming together by force and and creating something new. And uh, I think that he most certainly does that in this guitar concerto. Sharon played the 2015 premiere of that concerto with the Maryland Symphony Orchestra led by conductor Elizabeth Schultz. And they recorded a few years after that. So mm. that's who you just heard in that recording of Affinity by Chris Brubeck.
0: It doesn't seem like you can really go wrong with a guitar concerto because, again, uh, remember in the in the introduction we were talking about being different and that being the thing that uh, grabs attention. There's nothing really like a guitar concerto. If, you, if you're if you scrolling the radio dial and you hear a violin concerto going or a piano concerto, it's just kind of a thing. But at least to my ear and in my opinion, if you have an orchestra backing a guitarist that's something that's immediately just gonna make you lean in a little closer or at least you know make you curious for five more seconds than you would be otherwise
1: have you ever played in the orchestra for a guitar concerto uh, uh,
0: uh definitely a mandolin concerto i'm trying to remember uh oh actually uh there's a uh man i'm forgetting their name it's a they're a brazilian guitar duo uh i'm forgetting uh what what they call themselves but i did that as sphinx uh mm. many many years ago so it's yeah, like I said, I think there's a novelty about it that hasn't faded away over the over the ages. Even if you go back to some of the Rodrigo guitar concertos and and that sort of thing, I still think they um, are gems in the in the mm-hmm. catalog. Mm-hmm.
1: And also on this release, there's a world premiere recordings by Leo Brower,
0: who mm-hmm. yeah uh, Afro Cuban uh, right, composer
1: who it w- was part of the bedrock of my. Uh, classical Guitar Studies, and also uh, by Tan Dun and some others, all world re- premiere recordings with Sharon Isbin and the Maryland Symphony.
0: Yeah, well, shout out to everyone involved, Sharon Isbin, Chris Brubeck, and uh, all of the uh, orchestra members and uh, listeners to make that happen. Yes, hallelujah. All right, well, we are uh, jumping into the third movement, and I'm so honored to be joined this week by Leslie Kwan. So uh, Leslie Kwan uh, is a black woman who uh, has uh, expert status in the The world of playing the harpsichord, uh, but something sort of bumpy happened along the way. Um, I'll I'll have links and things in the description. But what I want to lean on, you know, as I preview this conversation, is that so many of us have a story. So many of us have dreams and aspirations, and things go left, and we have to do something else with our lives. But things going left, oftentimes is something good for us. Uh, In this interview, Leslie Kwan talks about her years working for Chanel and how that was the bedrock for her trajectory through the Western classical sphere Hmm. until things went a little left again, leading her uh, all the way to writing a children's book that I now have uh, two copies of. It's called A for Aretha. Uh, So uh, we're going to talk about all of that. You'll hear Leslie Kwan's story, and I'm just so honored and grateful to be able to share it with you all. Um, Leslie, uh, throughout the course uh, of the interview, talks about her love for French Baroque music. So we're going to honor French Baroque music and the harpsichord by listening to a little bit of it to get into the conversation. This is uh, an excerpt from a tune called Le Barinage by the French Baroque composer Marin Marais. Hilla Katz is the harpsichord is featured here to get us into my conversation with Leslie Kwan. I hope you all enjoy.
3: There are no pedals. The color of the keys are reverse, and I remember the first time playing on a couple playing a couple notes on it and just kind of going up and down like this. Like where'd the sound go? You know,
2: <laughs>
3: there's no way for expansion. And the woman who eventually became my teacher, you know, she pushed me aside and she goes, "No, no, no, no. The volume comes from touch." And then she started playing it. I remember my eyes going like, "Whoa, this is so wild." Um, it's really funny. I've, I haven't met a lot of people who hate it, like viscerally, Mm -hmm. um, they make the common joke, you know, it sounds like a thousand cockroaches copulating. I forget which composer said that. Um, but for me, it was where it registered pitch wise that half-step difference really hit home. Hmm. Um, And I don't know if that also might have been further supported by the fact that I picked up the viola when I was in high school. So the middle-range voice is something that I kind of really enjoyed, but there was something about playing Bach, Handel, Telemann at 415 as opposed to A equals 440 that really felt great. And then when I learned about French Baroque music and that that's a whole step down, my heart could not have been happier. Like that, (laughs) I felt like that was my happy place. So, you know, I'd have to say people that I have run into when I tell them I'm a harpsichordist, they just say more than anything, how did you, like how, like it just seems so foreign. Mm
2: -hmm. Um,
3: Logically for me, having been a pianist before, then it was very logical in that regard. But even still, I think, The connection of going from piano to to harpsichord was not something i would have assumed i would have done as a teenager or even in in, you know my first couple years of undergrad but it made a lot of sense later on when i reflect upon you know the composers i was really excellent at and it was rather intuitive for me to perform them well and it made sense that I gravitated towards the harpsichord. Then, do you own one? Like, do you have one in your home? No, I don't. Well, I mean, especially having moved to London, I moved right before a lockdown, so um, there was no way to get one <laughs> when I arrived. Sure, sure. Uh, but when I but when I left Boston, the harpsichord that I was the steward of uh, went on to another home, shall we say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's another conversation for another time. <laughs>
0: Is there a, a career path outside of academia for harpsichordists? I mean, we have solo pianists who travel the world. I don't know if I've heard about that for people who play the harpsichord.
3: Well, I mean, it's interesting. When I was pursu- working on my doctorate at Manus College of Music, my teacher, Arthur Haas, said, You know, I'd like for you to, I think you can apply for the DMA. I think you'd be great at you know, teaching in a in a in a university, I was really kind of flattered because I'd only been playing technically by that point for maybe two and a half years. I hadn't been playing very long. Um, and I I guess to a certain degree there is a path to become a solo harp supportist. It wasn't what I necessarily wanted for myself. I wanted. I enjoyed the company of playing in chamber ensembles, so a lot, a lot of my recitals in master's program and then in the DMA program at SUNY Stony Brook, I always incorporated some kind of chamber music work. So um, it's not that I didn't enjoy solo work; I just didn't desire. It wasn't like something that I was passionate about. Um, The main thing, of course, was to secure a teaching job, which, of course didn't happen. Um, But I'm very happy with the way how my career turned out anyway.
0: And your career has been very, very (laughs) dynamic, including (laughs) a tenure at Chanel. I wonder if you could talk a little bit how that happened and the role that it's played in your larger, broader career.
3: Yeah, my, my, my time at Chanel was quite fascinating. It came on the heels of Necessity. I was newly wed, uh, going back and forth to st- stony brook working on my DMA and my then husband worked in the tech industry and the company that he worked for closed on April Fool's Day of all times.
2: Oh wow. I um, love the joke. So one. I remember
3: he- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I remember he came home and said, you know, they've laid me off. I've got two weeks' severance, you need to find a job. And I honestly thought for about a few hours that he was kidding, but he was serious. Um, and at that point, Garrett, I had perhaps a year's worth of sales experience combined from working at Banana Republic for a couple of months when I was a master's student on the Upper West Side in New York City, and then a few months in preparation for our wedding, which happened the year before, so I can save some money on my wedding dress because it was really expensive. Uh, so the job at Chanel was not intentional. I I I read about the special events director of Chanel in the April issue of Lucky Magazine mm. in two thousand and three, because you know April Fool's Day was just the first, and I literally I think it was like the sixth or seventh I came across this article, um, and I thought, oh well, you know jackets are pretty, and then he, my 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 husband at the time, he said, why don't you look for a fashion job? And you know, he helped me comb the the web at that point. And I had no idea what I was looking for, honestly, Garrett. I just thought I, I have to be the breadwinner. Like this is nuts. Um, you know, because I was at this point a professional student mm-hmm. <laughs> working on my dissertation and you know, practicing eight hours a day. And so it was a very different mindset. And I just kept thinking, what am I gonna practice? Like this is this is not this was not the 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 marriage that we had started off with, but you know, life happened, right? So there was this random posting on a website called 247, 247 Talent, I think, and he found it, and it said they were looking for a salesperson for the Chanel boutique in Boston, which is where we were living at the time. And I didn't have a CV. He helped me put together my little CV of you know the three jobs I had in my entire career, <laughs> and uh, I walked in my best. Um, I went in with my best, you know, concert black daytime wear, which was <laughs> a sleeveless cashmere black sweater with black pants and black strappy sandals and a black bag. Like I didn't know what else to wear. Um, I had two interviews that day. I met with the director first, and then I met with her assistant. I remember I got all the way home, and um, my husband said, "You need to go back. The assistant manager wants to meet with you." And it was six weeks later. But they hired me. And the reason why they hired me is because the director said she'd never had a professional harp <laughs> pursuing a doctorate, applying for a job in luxury sales. And, you know, she asked all those questions, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And I was just riffing. I said, Oh, you know, I want to be in the corporate office. Like I had no idea.
2: Mm-hmm. But
3: and then she said, Well, I need a salesperson on the floor now. And I said, I can do I can do sales. I could absolutely do it. I did not know anything. I didn't know uh, that selling, you know, a $4,000 blazer to a customer uh, is not something that is just about the fact you can sell it once. You have to get them to come back. And how you develop that is really an art form. So it was very different from my uh, a little bit more relaxed schedule of waking up you know, maybe at eight o'clock in the morning and starting to practice at ten. Um, I had to be up at six or seven, take the train in, get there into the store by nine, have a meeting to talk about it. It was such a different world. Um, and a beautiful world because I mean fashion is gorgeous. Uh and, and of all the brands in the world to land a job in, I really could not have had a better company to start to cut my teeth
0: on, you know, so. In this music field of ours, there's so many of us who have out of necessity had to go outside of music. I mean, I had a master's degree and was delivering pizzas at one point. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm grateful that those days are behind me, but I just wonder if you could speak from your perspective to the sort of almost necessity for people in classical music to really have skills that they can that we can apply outside of the practice room and even outside of the concert hall, outside of
3: academia. Well, this is where I feel my time at Chanel really served me in ways that I could not have gotten if I ha- had become a professor. Um You know, first of all, being a a musician is quite a solitary experience. Um, And then you have the ivory tower of being in academia. So you're not interacting with the general public in ways. And then add on top of it, yes, it was luxury fashion, but it was a service job.
2: Mm -hmm. It
3: meant that if someone asked me to get them a glass of water with three ice cubes at room temperature, like it had to be, I learned a lot about... um, interacting with people, you know, especially as a harpsichordist, because I'm usually told to go in the back, you know, maybe either in the continuous section or I'm leading. And in this particular job environment, you were really interacting with the public in a very different way. You were, you were taking their cues to figure out when to approach them about a particular item. You had to learn how to you know, you're basically taking the pulse of someone in real time and still trying to actively get something from them to buy something from you.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then hopefully they like you so much that they'll come back um, and spend money with you again. So it was a cultivation of a, re- of a relationship that i had never learned as a musician, because we're not taught to do that. We're taught to wait for the critic to tell us if we're worthy. You know, mm-hmm. we're taught to you know that our t- coaches tell us if if we sound great, and we're taught to depend upon the applause uh, of and the temperature of the audience to what to distinguish. You know how we are as an artist here. You know my my value, my worth, so to speak, really depended upon my character hmm. um, and how I interacted with people the moment I met them. There was no time. You know, so and in that in that degree, you know, when my when the first director, when she hired me, she said, I know that you are familiar with interacting with different audiences. And that's what what it's like to be in sales. You have different people all the time and you have to be on and you have to be flexible. You have to be welcoming. Um, So all those different elements of sales, they weren't immediate to me at the beginning. I remember watching for the first few months, my colleagues, because the other thing I didn't mention about being in luxury sales is that you're supposed to have a book of clients. And there was a book I was supposed to inherit that was about a, a million dollars worth of of, oh, wow. of of clients in there. And by the time I started the job, my other three colleagues had taken the top. So I was basically starting with a book that was at a value of 200000 maybe. Mm-hmm. And I had to start that all over again, Garrett. And still make the million a year requirement for a full-time salesperson mm. with no salary, only commission. So it was, it, you know, and I remember telling that to my to my husband and I remember he just thought, he just said, how are you going to do this? Like, if no one comes in the store, how do you sell? I said, I have to make it, you know, I, I have to drum up something somehow, you know, it, so you really learn to hustle in a different way. Um And as a result of this, you know, when I moved to Boston, it was to 2002. And by 2004, I started to get to know a bit of the early music community there. And I learned over the years that, you know, people didn't take me seriously because I, you know, actually the the comment was that I was dabbling in harp support because I was in full-time sales at Chanel no one understood that it was a necessity for me to work. Right. Um, and I actually didn't feel like I needed to explain myself to anybody. <laughs> it's none of their and business.
2: As well. <laughs>
3: you know? Um, and the other thing that they did not know was that in working for a company like that and interacting with the type of clients that they have in a, a brand like that, I basically was getting my, my MBA in how to develop patrons mm. because it's the same cultivation practice and the people who were coming in the store, the majority of the clients that I had were either entrepreneurs or philanthropists. So I was speaking to these women and men who were, you know, donating X amount of God knows how much money to hospitals or museums or orchestras. And I learned a lot about how, how that worked for them as philanthropists um what to look for if i'm going to build something myself so i honestly felt uh, i i got out better because when i was ready to launch my own borough orchestra i i knew exactly what to do um and nobody expected it so
0: is it too late to hit you up for the the discount <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs>
3: All right. Well, maybe, maybe I'm afraid. Maybe so I'm around. afraid. So my mom keeps asking me, you know, are you sure you can't? I mean, she has the best shoe collection known to man right now.
0: <laughs> so talk about the, the road beyond Chanel. How did those skills and how did those relationships pave the way uh, for your road back into music, back into the arts?
3: Um, it was fascinating because when I made the decision with my colleague, Michael, to start a, a an organization in Boston, I I couldn't afford to pay for, um, you know, a nonprofit consultant to guide me and to teach me. But I had a lot of clients who were on board. So I developed really great friendships with a handful of them. And they were also very astute people. They figured out right away that I was not a, a, a luxury sales culture person, like that I didn't fit that mold begin with. So they figured that out right away. Um, And once they learned that I had a background in music, you know, the conversations were always varied, but we really talked a lot about how you move through the world. So I felt safe asking them questions. And most of them were really, you know, they were, they were also business people. So they'd say, why the hell (laughs) does Boston need another Baroque? And I, you know, I made my pitch. I said, you know, no one's really doing French baroque music. No one is, well, first of all, second of all, uh, there are very few women harpsichordists that are running their own thing. I'm the only black woman doing this kind of thing. And no one is hiring me locally to be in any of the orchestras. Um, if I, I might do a Sunday service here or there, but other than that, you know, it was pretty much a man's world, not to quote James Brown. So, you know, it was a bit... I I felt like I invested in intellectual currency to help me bridge that gap. And so when it came time to figure out, all right, we're going to really start this charity thing, there was no other way to do it but to learn how to build a charity. So I would work all day at Chanel from nine to six. And then I go to the Loeb Music Library at Harvard and research how to start a charity at night. And I did that for about a little over a year with my colleague, Michael, and we launched our first concert in February of 2009. And it was, I think it was a surprise. It It was a surprise to me in the sense that having gone from having an idea in my head of something that I imagined, but not knowing how it actually sounded until we had our first rehearsal. I remember the first rehearsal, Michael and I looked at each other and we were just thinking, oh my gosh. This is actually quite good, you know, um, and, to, and, to, and to find the belief that I could do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That was the other thing, because there were quite a few people who let me know that my place about choosing to launch something and not asking permission. Um, and I don't really have bandwidth for that kind of conversation. So I just you know, continuing on my way, but, you know, working in the luxury retail world, it can be quite catty. So, and I had gone to, you know, LaGuardia High School of the Arts and and that's super competitive. So I was, I've been groomed on competition, you know, (laughs) I'm seasoned when it comes to that. So when people would come at me with comments, I really wouldn't pay them any mind. know for me the most important thing was to take the lessons i learned from chanel and the biggest ones was biggest ones were um you know if you have clients if you have patrons it takes time to develop with working with them and talking with them um it's really the long game it's not about about the quick you know five hundred dollars that they can give you Mm -hmm. um and that your intention and the legacy that you want to build is critical and I think having ownership of that at the beginning made it easier for me to figure out how I wanted my group at that point to sit in the community. And I and I actually wasn't really thinking about what either of the two bigger groups thought or felt. I was just focused on our sound. That was critical to me and um, delivering the best product because it is a product
0: and with all of that success building those relationships and you know yeah. launching your 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 own project you did eventually make it back to music institutions i wonder if you'll speak a little bit about that especially considering you know it's it can always it seems seemingly anyway can be a challenge going from the i built my own thing to now i have to sit at somebody else's desk i have to sit under someone else's you know administration
3: yeah well, what you're talking about is my foray back into working with a, one of the biggest orchestras in the world. Um, when I was approached to work for the Boston Symphony Orchestra, it came on the heels of successfully launching a weekly chamber music series at dana Farber Cancer Institute, which is one of the top hospitals for cancer in the world. And that came about because of my relationships that I developed over time from Chanel and eventually um you know taking faith that music can be more than just uh, a a product that you go and you sit and you listen and it's beautiful my my inspiration for the series at the hospital was because my our mother was diagnosed with stage 3 non-hodgkin's lymphoma and had been in the hospital for many years mm. um she's a, she's still with us so um but at the, at that point um that really was so important to me that I wanted to move the lens from us being on stage all the time and to really be of service. And that I don't think I would have probably gotten to that point if she A, hadn't been sick, and B, I didn't work with the kind of clients that I had. So when the call came, when the offer came, they created a, they created this job for me. Um, I was working for a private jeweler at the time, and, and I remember, <laughs> which was family-owned. And I had just done like crazy, I don't know, almost half a million dollars in watches because they they sold Patek Philippe watches. And I'm really good at watch sales. And I remember being a little bit nervous to go and tell the owner, listen, the Boston Symphony Orchestra should just yeah. offer me this job. And, um, you know, and I was making a really good living in, in jewelry fine sales. But uh, he just said to me, we'll take out the champagne tonight. When's your notice? You know, they could not have been more gracious about it. So. Entering into that house was a real head turner. First of all, you know, I'm a harpsichordist. I hadn't sat in an orchestra concert hall in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Modern pitch, that was my first adjustment. (laughs) Um, Secondly, though, just the headiness of being part of an institution that has done so much, you know, brought so much beauty to the world through their recordings. And then also the responsibility of shaping their marketing and being a part of that institutionally it was really different. I mean, again, I was back to being one, uh, being the only one, um, and on the administration, when it came to marketing arts or, uh, ed- educational development, I was the only, per- I was the only black employee. Um, and it was, <laughs> it was really interesting because a lot of the support staff were from the Caribbean, and they immediately figured out that I was Guyanese, so mm-hmm. we got along really, really well. But at the same time, I was very fortunate, and I really have to say this—I say this every time—the woman who recruited me, Kim Nolte, me was the chief marketing officer, and she allowed me to be myself, and that made it much easier for for the job to for me to do the job, because she saw what I developed over years with the hospital series and um she basically gave me confirmation and affirmed my ability to market music classical music because up until that point doing it for myself i just thought you know i'm not a professional marketing executive like this is wild you really want to make me ad in marketing and she said, you know, but I just just take a look at what you've created with the with Dana Farber and Mass General Hospital. That's marketing. You've got the story. You've got the branding. You've got your colors, like all of that. And again, I have to say that I learned all of that by working at Chanel. I mean, I don't think every salesperson walks out with that perspective, but I did.
0: And you're not at the Boston Symphony Orchestra anymore. You've gone on to do so many other things, but there there was a big story once upon a time about uh, (laughs) another one of your employers. You know, you once uh, worked for uh, Handel and Haydn, and people can still read the story today about, you know, not only your entry into that institution, but your exit. I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that here.
3: Yeah, that was a very Um, that was a really dark experience, especially since I had been um, sought after for the role. Um, You know, Garrett, I think when you come from working with the top institutions, Chanel, Boston Symphony Orchestra, um, even my education going to LaGuardia, you're accustomed to behaving a certain way, getting the job done a certain way, and also being trusted to do your work. Mm. And you know, I think kind of like a lot of a lot of a lot of relationships, things start off really well, um, which it did. And over time, you know, the signs were there about you know not being. Uh, accepting my professional experience as a harpsichordist you know all the reasons why i was brought on for that job i was a harpsichordist i had run my own orchestra i'd worked for a major orchestra i had extensive fundraising experience behind me um you know all of those boxes that i checked off and then i happened to be black and female you know i was also the first black executive to work in that organization in over 200 years so well wow. When, you know, as Shonda Rhimes says, when you're first only indifferent, different, you know, you either get used to it or it trips you up every time. I had way gotten used to it just because of the, the world that I occupied. Um, but when things went left, <laughs> as they did, uh, that was a real shock. It was a real shock, namely because of the efforts that were made to portray me as incompetent um, that I didn't have much to contribute to the community where at this point I've been living in Boston for 15 years. I had employed pretty steadily for the chamber music series about 40 people, which was over three years. And then, you know, my series, my, my, the chamber orchestra I had, you know, it was over an eight year period. So, you know, it wasn't like I was just sitting back and waiting for people to hire me. I had created,
2: mm-hmm.
3: I produced and create- created work. Um, and I also, you know, I just left the box. <laughs> so, you know, it just hit me that uh, you can't assume that everything that looks the way that it does is, is going to be as honest as it could be. And that, you know, yeah. I think almost every black executive I've ever met, or black person, frankly, has experienced this. You know, when someone's looking at you, like, how, who, 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 who do you know? How do you? How did you get here? Mm-hmm. Who do you know? Or who yeah, you, like, how did you? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. You know, there were so many occasions, particularly with the top leadership in that organization, and specifically with the CEO, where I, I knew that there was this energy and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from because it wasn't there at the beginning. Um, but what I did realize is that I was never gonna be allowed to have my voice in the end. Ultimately, The way how things were marketed then is still the same way how they're marketed now. Um, From what I've been told from colleagues back in Boston, that things still kind of look the same. And the fact for me, though, with this particular person, that he used these slurs and didn't apologize, didn't try to make amends, but tried to cover it up and portray me as as my mother would say, average, which is the best of the worst and worst of the best, which Hmm. is never a word that's associated with my name, frankly, was really appalling. But but truthfully, beyond him, the heartbreak and the darkness happened because out of my entire Baroque community in that city, maybe two people checked in on me to see if I was okay no one actively came out and said, you know, Leslie's not being dramatic. She's not a drama queen. She's not, she's not making this up as the only black woman in the, in all of new England that was doing this kind of work. You know what this is like, Garrett, you can't blink and make a mistake.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: So to not have, you know it's one thing when you're hiring people but we were still colleagues i just thought how could you not check in on me to see that i'm all right i thought if the roles were reversed it wouldn't even be a question if it if 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 it was any if it was any, any one of my queer friends it wouldn't even be a question i would immediately go write a letter or approach the institution and say you're wrong about this person you're wrong about their character. This is not who this I perform, you know, I perform and make music with these people. And that's that's where I felt like my heart really broke because I realized I've been making music with people who, who who wouldn't stand up for me. And that to me was worse in some ways than the racism because I thought if I can't feel safe with the people that I'm built a community with, that I built an orchestra with, that I built series produce concerts and what what is there what's what's left i i how do you feel safe when you've been the betrayal was just you know and i've been already divorced by this point like it was it was just it just went so far and it just cut so deep and i and i feel it's because you know music for me is my that's my spot and i've always known that it didn't matter what was happening in the world I can always go listen to a piece of music or go play something or play with friends and everything will be right. But when I realized none of them would stand up to racism, but I would stand up for their rights? No. And, <laughs> hey, you know, yeah.
2: not,
0: not only do I empathize, I know exactly what you mean, you know, and yeah. there's so many of us with such a similar story, you know, as a as a public we're all conditioned to give institutions the benefit of the doubt over yeah. the one person who has a story. When you mix that in with no one having your back, and then on top of all of that, this is headline news. You know, this is yeah. something that's just out there. It just adds so much pressure. I know when I was going through my situation, I had to cut my phone off for a couple of yeah. weeks. You know, if you were calling yeah. me with good news or bad news, I just yeah. don't have it right now. I wonder how you coped. How how did you find yourself? following that really traumatic experience?
3: Well, on the heels of, find, of realizing within seconds when the CEO left me with the CFO to deliver the message, they were basically trying to buy me off by op- offering $4,000 for my asylums. Um, I remember going home that night. I cried until I couldn't cry anymore. Um, I woke up the next morning and I couldn't go back into the office. This happened on a Monday. They wouldn't allow me to even take my things. I mean, it was literally, it felt like an execution. Um, I remember waking up the next morning, looking in the mirror and just thinking, Leslie girl, if you do not stand up for yourself, you are going to be dead. No one's going to come for you. No one's going to back you with this. You have to defend yourself. And I was pretty heartsick because this happened in March, March 27th of 2017, 2016. And um, sorry, 17, I have my years mixed up, 2017. And I remember, um, you know, immediately looking online arts council, uh, arts consulting at different, you know, recruiting companies to see what jobs I could apply for. You know, scrambling, and I couldn't really go out in public. Like I just, it felt so conspicuous. So, a few and, and oddly enough, a couple of weeks later, my landlord told me that his, his his that he needed the the apartment that I was living in. So I had to move out of my apartment by May first of that year. Uh so some two very dear friends of mine just offered me to stay with them in, in Nantucket, which I did. It was only supposed to be for a couple of weeks, but then I ended up getting a job there managing a boutique from an old client, thank God, who, um, uh, you know, knew that I was out, I wasn't working and I basically spent my time on Peter Pan Island is what I call Nantucket. Cause it's just so idyllic. And so, so, so far removed from reality in a lot of ways. Um, and I, you know, right. I sold beautiful clothes in this gorgeous boutique and, but I really didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, I connected with some, with some customers who were working for a fashion brand called Sonia Riquiel at the time. And the woman who was running the sales uh, wholesale division said, oh, well, you know, if you're not doing anything in in, in September come to Paris and work for us for three weeks. And I was like, oh, you know, think about that. Because Paris had always been a destination for me. And I always thought I was going to move to Paris, you know, married with children, um, which I didn't have either by this point. So I remember it was late August and I was, I'd woken up from a deep sleep and my maternal grandmother, who had been passed away for a number of years, I woke up and smelled her perfume in the room. Mm. And which was really weird because it was a very heavy scent and it was hot. So it was like, this, this is strange, but I also remember waking up and seeing her face and she has this Mona Lisa smile. Um, you know, no teeth, but the eyes just light up and she was nodding her head. And I thought, Oh, she's telling me to go to Paris. Mm -hmm. So that afternoon I booked a one way ticket. I didn't tell my family until it was like the last minute. And, um, I just picked up it, moved myself to Paris. I knew probably two people in Paris. I took the job for Sonia Riquel for a few weeks. And then, um, I just basically stayed in touch with friends who knew friends in Paris and kind of hopped around. Sofa, 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 uh, crashed. Is that the expression?
2: Uh-huh. Couch, 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 yeah.
3: couch surfed. Um, and, uh, my one goal, Garrett, was to wake up every morning.
2: Hmm.
3: That was the only thing I could think about, and then I needed to walk, and I needed to just look at beautiful things until I could repair my heart. So when that article came out in October of 2017, my attorney had called me. I was visiting friends in Switzerland at that point, and my friend, that was my host, uh, said, "You know." There's an article in the Boston Globe that's gonna come out about you. Do you wanna say anything? And I said, there's it's all public knowledge. So um, but even then, Garrett, the only people who followed up with me by that point were my my previous board members. None of the musicians followed up with me.
2: Mm.
3: So I basically spent from September through March of 2018 from September 2017 to March 2018 basically roaming the streets of Paris nursing my heart just walking i did not play i didn't seek out trying to perform i did apply between 2017 april 2017 and around april may 2018 i applied to 30 jobs of those jobs, I'd say 20 of them were arts positions. No one no one answered any of my emails. And that's how I knew that I was blacklisted because before when I was at the Boston Symphony, I had really great connections.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So I, I just basically took pictures of a lot of French doors <laughs> and pictures of the clouds and the architecture and I just needed to heal my heart. I couldn't I couldn't play. I couldn't even listen to baroque music. I couldn't listen to anything. And actually now still it's hard for me to go to a baroque music concert.
2: Mm.
0: Before we cut on the mics, we were talking about, you know, this idea of the lotus, you know, needing all of that mud and muck. To, yeah. to live, to to exist. So I, I, so with, with that in mind, I wonder with all of this proverbial muck and swamp that was surrounding you, when did you yeah. begin to see a little bit of light? When, when did your lotus begin to bloom after everything you had gone through?
3: Gosh, I mean, in some ways I kind of feel like I'm still in it <laughs> um, <laughs> because I haven't been able to get a full-time position since that happened. Mm. Um, which is so, that was in 2017. So it's been six years that I have not worked for an institution and I haven't been hired for an institution. Um, Why did the light, when I feel like I was emerging? Um, in some ways, this book has felt like I've emerged. When I wrote it, I was so focused on just the, uh, just the, the intention of writing something for my niece, for my nieces, for kids, that would teach them a little bit about the Black women who created these different genres of music and and changed the world through their activism. But there was something that the president of Kokula Press, who's my, Kokula Books, who's my publisher at Penguin, uh, Namrata, and I remember she said to me, well, now you have a new stage for your music. And I felt like the wind had been knocked out of me because I honestly didn't know if I was going to be in music, I didn't know what that looked like anymore.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Because I still was heartbroken by that. And this is in 2020. I was still heartbroken at the thought of performing with people. I still felt like I couldn't trust even the new friends that I was developing relationships with, I didn't know if I could allow my heart to go to open up to do that again. So writing the book was a bit of a catharsis in that way. And I feel that that light has is started to shine a bit more now. Um, but there's still there's still there's still more. Uh, more petals that need to emerge you know I, I, I it's not to say that I'm afraid because Lord knows I mean if 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 the right opportunity came around I probably would take something on but frankly um, the sector is in such disrepair uh, and a lot of the things that I was, was preaching back in 2016 that orchestras need to do we're still having those conversations now, Garrett. So <laughs> I feel that if, if, if anything happens for the future, it will be underneath my own my own outfit.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the book. So for folks who don't know, it's not a novel, it's not your autobiography, at least not no. yet. It's, it's no, not yet it really highlights A to Z women who have done incredible things in music. How did you yeah. select? Each of the women. There are so many L's, for example, or so many yes. C's. How did you finally decide that A is for Aretha, N is for Nina Simone, and and so
3: on? There were some that were pretty obvious to me. When I was chasing my niece around in the house, you know, A's for Aretha was immediate because we were singing the song Respect, and I was pretty much admonishing her about respecting her older brother. <laughs> um, but there were others, and and initially when I wrote the book, my pitch to the woman who's now my agent, I had Three three names per letter. Uh and she said it was too many. And mm-hmm. then of course when I met with the publisher, they said, No, it has to be one name per letter. So I knew I was gonna catch some heat, but as some as someone t- said to me, How could you not have Beyonce in there? And I said, Well, I couldn't do Beyonce without having Billy.
2: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So
3: it, w- it was pretty a lot of it was pretty easy um there were some that were harder uh like the letter z was tricky because i didn't know about zoe 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 wees in germany but she's she's astonishing um and i wanted the book to have a variety of art- artists that are living and th- those who had passed on but their legacy was still with us so i i'm happy w- with the balance of artists that are in the book
0: do you have plans on uh Expanding your your catalog now that you have this successful children's book, it seems that <laughs> would have opened the door to more ideas and maybe even more possibilities. Especially considering that you have publishers and booksellers who are yeah. at least in some way behind you now.
3: Yeah, it's been fascinating living in London as an American author and having bookshops say, you know, oh my gosh, we need books like this. You know, uh, so the support here has been incredible. Uh, I never imagined in a million years that my Widmore Hall debut would be as an author. Mm -hmm. I I felt very much like Nina Simone when she made her her Carnegie Hall debut as a jazz pianist and not as Mm -hmm. a classical pianist. Uh, But, you know, to answer your question, uh, there are a lot of possibilities. Uh, I can't really speak about them because they're definitely things that, that are being discussed, but in terms of writing another book, that's 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 the plan, whether it just depends upon, you know, Penguin's gonna say, yes, here's the stamp of approval. I think they're I know that they're really happy with it. So I'm going to just assume the best, like I do with everything else.
0: What do you think it means for someone who's gone through what you have gone through to have found A place, you know. I'm I'm a trained bassoonist. Somehow, I got into radio and media (laughs) and and, and content. Is that a a testament to you know what we go through as individuals? Certainly, as Black people, or is that more of a statement of the field itself? In your perspective,
3: I think it's a. I I think there's three points to it. Definitely, as black as Black people, we're accustomed to making a way out of no way, right? Mm -hmm. Because we have to. That's the first thing. Second thing, as a, as, a, as a musician, I was always, I knew at age 13, 14, that I was not going to, like, whatever musician I was going to be, I needed to find her first. So even though I was excellent at piano viola, it didn't feel like my sonic home until I discovered the harpsichord. So in that regard, and even the path with that, like, I could have easily, well, correction, even if I had finished my DMA, I would not have had a job in in a university because it's it's uh, there, there are so few positions out there. Uh, the, the same people have the same positions, and they it's kind of like a monopoly on them. So it it would be nice if every school that had a job had one teacher, as opposed to one teacher taking six schools,
2: mm-hmm. which is currently
3: the case. So. I feel that there's those two elements are true, but then the other side of it is, is also knowing yourself. Like I, when we were in high school, my teachers would talk to us about the reality of being a professional artist. You know, you want, you know, Debbie Allen says it in the Fame movie, you want this life, it's going to be hard, you got to work for it, you know, and we were taught that at age 13, 14 years old, you know, you want this life. You have to, you have to know if you have the bandwidth to be an international artist, because that's going to mean you're not going to be home. Are you a homebody? Do you like children? Do you want to have a, hut? like, those are the conversations that I remember having, not just with my teachers, even, but with my classmates, figuring out your comfort level with that. So, I feel because I was always so secure in my, my musicianship. I didn't rush and I'm glad I didn't rush because I've never been happier when it came to the harp support. I mean, truly, um, and French broke music specifically. I mean, that's really where my heart lies in a lot of different ways, but I wouldn't trade the experiences that I've had that have brought me to this place because as Namrata said, I have a new stage for my music and that doesn't mean that I have to know, you know, I have to stop performing.
2: Mm-hmm. I
3: can still choose to perform. The question is, when will I do it? You know, Harwood's took off in a decade. So <laughs> I'm almost there. The last time I performed was in 2014. So Maybe I'll have my Horowitz moment next year and come back to the stage. 20, oh, 20, i 2024. 20, 20,
0: sure <laughs> <laughs> well, how can folks pick up "A is for Aretha" and support this new trajectory that you're on as an author?
3: Thank you. You're very generous, Garrett. Um, you can find it at bookstores. There's Target in the United States, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, obviously, independent bookstores. I think most independent bookstores carry it, but for the major carriers, it's Uh, It's Target, Barnes & Noble, and uh, Amazon. And in the UK and in Europe, it's probably largely through the Amazon of those countries.
0: Yeah, everyone (laughs) definitely go pick it up. I have two copies myself.
3: (laughs) (laughs) You're so generous. Thank
0: you. Uh, I I wanted to wrap up um, by going back to, you know, the whole blacklisting sort of situation. But before I ask you about that, what would be your response to, Um, your niece or some of the youngsters in your life, uh, young black girls who would come to you and say, I want to be a harpsichordist or I want to be a, you know, what, what would you say to them? How, 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 how would you react to that? Considering your experiences?
3: Um, well, I was really blessed to have parents that allowed me to be the artist that I am. So I would definitely encourage them to do that. Uh, Having gone through the road and still going through that road, I would tell them to think about what their intention is and what their legacy is. I was really fortunate to meet uh, a gentleman named Javier, who was at the Boston Foundation many years ago, who who said to me, so Leslie, you've got your orchestra, you know, what happens if you die tomorrow? What's your legacy?
2: Mm.
3: And as musicians, we're not taught about our legacy. We're taught about getting as many concerts as possible and getting the best reviews and hopefully getting management and making money off of your career. Not so much about what's the imprint that you leave when you pass on. Um, So I would definitely encourage them to think about the intention, their intention behind being a musician and to be comfortable with being uncomfortable Mm,
2: mm.
3: because this life is not comfortable.
0: (laughs) And, you know, speaking of being uncomfortable, I'm sure I know that there are many people right now listening quite uncomfortably, people who didn't have your back, people who didn't write you a note to see how you were doing. What are your words to those folks, people who you thought were really in your corner and weren't? If you had all of their ears right now, what would you
2: say to them? You know, fear is an awful thing.
3: Fear of your opportunity to make money is a terrible position to be in. And I knew once I found out there was a letter distributed to the musicians about what was going on at Handel Haydn. And that still people didn't reach out to me. I realized that the fear that had them in a grip was stronger than our alliances as artists. So in the end, I guess my words to them would be that I wish that they will move along in the world, no longer gripped in that fear, but being willing to stand up for what's right and to take the, take the leap of doing that. Because in the end, you have to still face yourself whether or not that's important to them Is not, not I guess will depend upon them as individuals but um, it definitely opened up my eyes as to how I make music and how I move forward now when it comes to that world
0: Excerpt there from the Suite in A Minor, a 1728 composition by Jean Philippe Rameau. Mm. To uh, wrap up my conversation with Leslie Kwan, I can't wait to uh, show you a copy of the the book that she wrote. But I wonder if you could speak to uh, how important it is to see the positive and not being where you thought you would be, but still still somewhere great. Once upon a time, I thought I would spend the rest of my life sitting on stage playing uh, a bassoon, looking like an extra in *Downton Abbey*. You know, but <laughs> I didn't hey. mean to hit the the, uh, the horn there. But you know, where where my career now is is different. I don't know. Maybe you always saw yourself as a nationally syndicated radio host, but you know, even though that's not where you may have originally planned, there have certainly been benefits for you along the way.
1: Yeah, I almost got in the furniture business. That would have been crazy. Um, <laughs> And when I first started in college, the whole idea was uh, theater. I was gonna right. do. I, w- I was gonna go and be an actor, and I was gonna voice cartoon characters and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: But it didn't take me very long to figure out that that sort of lifestyle wasn't the one that I wanted. Sure. So then the idea was I was gonna go over to the classical station, get an internship in a little microphone time, and then I would go and get a job over at one of the cool rocker
0: new wave stations and now here you are ho- co-hosting the, the <laughs> podcast and so we'll give you the air for you. <laughs> and none of that worked out <laughs> so
1: yeah um what what can I say the, the uh, I did ben- I of course I benefited from the fact that I'm in a system that was built for me sure so but uh, I can't hate on it too hard because it did get me to where I am yeah yeah. And and I guess now is that I I feel like I need to um, do this work in order to uh, have other people get the right idea about what this music can be rather than what… We're indoctrinated when we exactly. start with it.
0: Exactly, and I think you know. For me, it's important for us to just highlight that because there is a lot of real emotion and real pain to be blacklisted from a field, from a uh, from a profession that you had dedicated your life to. You know, again, I'm going to put the uh, uh, the article in the description here, but I'll just read the headline for y'all. Uh, this comes from the Boston Globe. It says former employee claims racial discrimination in Suit against Handel and Haydn Society. Okay, so you know Leslie is a woman who really had to deal with this stuff head on, mm-hmm. and just seeing um, phrases like "claims racial discrimination," you know, can really add to that hurt. You know, we all have dreams, we all have aspirations, and when we're cut off, you know, on some bullshit like racism, you know, standing standing our ground, that's not easy to deal with. And I think there's always somewhere to you know pull some gratitude. I'm grateful for you know what I have gone through. I'm grateful. You know, I'm I'm not going to say I'm grateful that Leslie went through what she went through, but I'm grateful to have a book called A is for Aretha that Mm. I can share with the next generation and my family. You know, so that you know my niece can be affirmed in being a a young black girl and seeing images of black women in the field of music and just being empowered in that way. So again, you know a Lot of mud for that one lotus but we're still uh, appreciative for that one lotus all right well we're going to uh, jump into the triloquy movement this week uh, with a performance uh, featuring uh, marcus miller on bass clarinet a rendition here of a tune called how great thou art we'll uh, see y'all on the other side here Of course, we're listening to a little bit of bass clarinet because Ralph Yarl has been pictured throughout the media, you know, in, in a band room or at a performance with his bass clarinet. The The first thing I want to say is that I was stumbling... A little earlier in this opus, you know, the the name Elijah wants to come out because for so long I was thinking about Elijah McClain as that example of you know the way anti-blackness looks. It has nothing to do with being or looking like a so-called thug, and I even hate to say that that that's the new version of the N-word as far as I'm concerned these days. But it has nothing to do with any of that there is an assault on the black body especially on the young male black body and lives are being lost classical music being a music student being learned being straight A's being whatever is not absolving anyone from that reality and we need to talk about it more for folks again who may not pay attention to the news what are we what are we talking about here what what happened well I've I
1: I am not as up to speed on this one as you are, but um, I forget the young man's first name. Ralph. Ralph Yarrow was a a young uh, black man who was going to pick up his siblings, went to the wrong house. Someone said they saw a, a shadowy outline, they felt threatened, and they shot through the door. And then just to make sure that the job was done, they went out and shot The man in the head. That's the part. In the head. In a
0: neighborhood. I'm extremely proud of the really quick response and show of solidarity that I saw from a number of uh, people in the arts and arts institutions. I actually learned about this situation from the Black Orchestral Network. Shout out to uh, everyone that's over there. I think this shines a light on why we need institutions and organizations like those folks who really center on situations like these to raise awareness to show support and to remind us all no matter how classically we trained uh, we are trained or aren't trained this is something that happens to us i'm sure I, I, and i and i want to hope and pray that folks like the Kansas City Symphony are putting their foot in their hand and doing something, raising money, something for for this family and this young man. I understand you you said that he's at at home recovering now. Actually,
1: yeah, I thought that was really quick.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and maybe that's the you know I was definitely sitting in here chanting for him all morning long. I'm sure there's all sorts of positive energies uh, that were that were going his way. So I'm glad that he's at home healing. But I think, you know, alongside that, we really need to talk about the pathways for these diverse orchestras that we want to talk about, these diverse schools of music, and how these people that stakeholders have in mind have to survive America. They have to survive anti-Blackness. That is one of the things that is required for a young Black musician to make it to your audition Mm. or to make it to your DEI initiative. I know that's... A very grim and gruesome way to think about that, but situations like these have me thinking about exactly that. That's the first place my mind goes.
1: I I still think that it is ridiculous in a, in a, not even a dangerous hood, not even a, a, a troublesome neighborhood. Why are people so afraid? that they need to fire through a door. I don't, I don't know. And of
0: a 16 year old, I decided a long time. I'm from the hood. Okay. And I decided a long time ago that I was not going to be afraid of any neighborhood that I live in because this is my neighborhood too. I live here as well. So there are some times over where I, where I live now, especially in the summer where it gets a little spicy. Maybe you hear a, a a firework or two. I say, I'll, I'll just convince myself that they're, they're fireworks. But at the end of the day, I'm, I don't feel like I need to go armed because somebody rang the doorbell and then just the cruelty of shooting not once but twice and intentionally in the head, There, there there's no way to not call foul. A uh, a headline that I, I pulled up from KCUR, that's the uh, Kansas City NPR affiliate, the headline says, uh, Ralph Y'all shooting, prosecutors announce felony charges, issue arrest warrant for shooter. So we are seeing some justice there. And I know uh, maybe last week or not too long ago, I was talking about rehabilitation, how I don't... I don't like the idea of putting folks in cages, but this is somebody who really, really, really needs to be away from society if a 16-year-old ringing the doorbell warrants a bullet from their perspective. I think there is training that can be done, but it's a long 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 road, not only for that individual, but for all of the people born from that culture. You know, the the culture of I need to be armed. I am constantly in danger. Who is this black person at the door? We need to be having the, those conversations more broadly, but again, as as I keep you know, Circling back to, because this is a young musician, because this is someone who uh, could one day potentially uh, be prospected for a scholarship or something by some college or conservatory, whatever, I think we have a specific responsibility to engage this conversation, because if not us, who? again, I'll repeat myself, for every DEI initiative, for every diversity plan, for every black person, uh, a person of color that you want in your ranks, you have to begin to think about the fact that they have to survive America. We have to survive America to even make it to that place. So how do you apply equity, understanding that? How do you apply, uh, uh, scholarship opportunities, or placement opportunities, things to um, help facilitate travel to to mm. different things. Or you know, mm-hmm. th- th- there are all sorts of things I can uh, list off. We need to make sure that we're a part of the conversation. And again, as I mentioned maybe last week or before, when we think back to the civil rights movement, hell, when we think about uh, the so-called Black Lives Matter movement, maybe that's what they'll call uh, 2020 uh, in, in the future. There are names and there are some institutions that we can instantly think of and pull to the front as supporters. Why are none of those arts institutions? You know, who are the arts institutions that were at the front? during the civil rights movement? Who are the arts institutions that were at the front in 2020? And who are the arts institutions that are at the front now and today when young Black musicians are being gunned down in cold blood for no good reason and all because of racism? The question that I'm always asking myself and one that I hope we will all continue to ask toward raising awareness uh, not only around these issues but our responsibility To these issues
1: speedy recovery to ralph is what i have to say and for everybody who is answering the door with a gun in their hand i don't what what do you even say what what do you even say
0: thank you everyone see you next (laughs) week i didn't know how to end it what do you say yeah there is nothing to say